I'm gonna, we're gonna welcome Dan. Let's give him a round of applause. Dan's, uh, Dan's come all the way from Cambridge this morning to uh, share God's word with us. I'm looking forward to this. Um, I'm gonna hand over to you, mate. Wonderful, thank you. Um, Right, we're looking at Ephesians, as you know the book of Ephesians, and so many commentators have made the point that Ephesians is perhaps the most important document in history. Uh, One of Paul's um, letters to a church that he knew well, a letter that he wrote from prison, having spent three years with the Ephesians previously, an experience which um, was a mixture of opposition, he was thrown out of the synagogue, uh, he started a riot, um, but was also very, very fruitful. It's said that when he was kicked out of the synagogue, he started to speak in the hall of Tyrannus, which is just imagine like the little council um, building that he managed to get hold of. And from that place, the whole of Asia, the whole of Turkey heard the word of the Lord. So it was incredibly fruitful but massive opposition when when he met the elders from Ephesians from Ephesus on the beach at Miletus in Acts 20 it says that they wept because they wouldn't see him again so a deep relationship with this church and yet he writes a letter uh, the Ephesians which is um, sort of not born out of a specific situation Lots of the letters like Philippians, Galatians, Corinthians are written to specific situations. He starts naming people. He starts naming situations. He refers back to previous correspondence. Ephesians isn't like that. Ephesians is all of Paul's mission, all of Paul's heart, synthesized, distilled into one very short letter that was meant to be a circular to the churches in that area, probably the churches that are mentioned in Revelation. And so this is a great view into the heart of this apostle, Paul. And he spends the first half telling them what they should know. And then he spends the second half telling them what they should do in light of what they know. He starts with this huge vision of the church. And you have to understand that Paul isn't painting a beautiful picture of the church because he's stupid, he's in denial, he doesn't know what real relationships are like. Paul was betrayed, Paul was opposed, Paul was abandoned, Paul was (laughs) thrown out of places, Paul was put in a bucket and gone down the side of uh, the war. Paul fell out with Barnabas, his very close friend, over Mark. Paul had to oppose Peter to his face, his good friend, and say, you need to stop turning your back on the Gentiles. Paul knew what real relationships were like, and yet he still paints this beautiful picture of the church in Ephesians. And it's a multi-dimensional letter. Even though it's six short chapters, its scope is intergalactic. Okay, so just, just, just listen to the sort of different dimensions that Paul has in view. He says that, it, that Christ, the one who ascended, also 
descended. So there's a vertical element to what Paul's thinking about. He says that we are raised with Christ and seated with Christ in heavenly places. So there's this vertical dimension to Ephesians. Then it says the present age and the age to come. The whole thing is laced through with we are guaranteed until that great day. So there's this dimension through time between where we are now and where we will one day be. We've just sung that. When trumpet sounds, on that day, I want to be found in Christ. That's our hope. So we, even in our songs, we have this, this view of the now and the not yet, the ascended Christ who descended to us. But not just those two dimensions in Ephesians. Third dimension is that those who are far off and those who are near, those who are Gentiles and those who are Jews are being brought together, that he has broken down, dividing all. So in these six short chapters, Paul is saying above and below, in the past, in the future, those who are far off and those who are near. All these huge themes woven through the book of Ephesians. And he tells us, in the first part of it, all the things he wants us to know, that you are saints, that you're set apart, that you're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that he made us holy and blameless, that he predestined us, that he adopted us as sons. That's to do with status in that community. And I learned recently from a friend who grew up in the Middle East that there are countries in the Middle East where if people are named in a will, they all have to be present for the will to be enacted. Basically, unless you all inherit, no one inherits. The Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ. We are adopted as sons. We inherit. That's one of the big themes. He redeems us with his blood. He forgave us. He's made his will known to us. Paul's just telling them what they need to know, that they are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit sealed with the guarantee of God. It's said in the Roman Empire that if something was sealed with the Roman signet ring, then all the power of Rome stood behind that seal. If you broke that seal without official permission, it was a death sentence. That seal guaranteed the authenticity of what was inside. The Holy Spirit is our seal. The person of the Holy Spirit guarantees us until that great day. All the power of heaven stands behind that seal. Paul's just telling us things that are true. He prays for us that we might know that God loves us. This is Paul who was on his way to murder the church, murder the church, when Christ appeared miraculously to him and said, I love you, who showed him who he was. He was killing the church and he said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Because he is the head of the church. He showed Paul all that he had to suffer and he showed him that he loved him. He healed him of his blindness. I can't imagine anything but that every time Paul says, I want you to have a revelation, he's thinking of that moment that he had on the road to Damascus, that revelation. Paul prays for us. He tells us that the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. The power that raised Christ from the dead, that he is brought us together in Christ. He's broken down dividing walls, that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. 
that God has good work prepared in advance for us to do, that we've been brought near, that he makes peace, that he builds us into a temple. This city of Ephesus, which was dominated by the temple of Diana, he says to them, you're the temple. You are the temple. I mean, trying to take all that in, Ephesians 1 to 3, is like a mosquito trying to drink Niagara Falls. It's overwhelming in all the right ways. Let it pour over you. I was saying that we're also preaching through Ephesians at City, and I've read Ephesians probably 30, I know for a fact I've read it 30 times in the last couple of months, just letting it wash over me again and again and again. Paul wants us to know all these wonderful things. And now we're tipping into the second section, things to do. One to three things to know, now things to do. So let's read Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. I love Paul's perspective. He's in prison because of the to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In the NIV, this word walk has kind of been expunged, and it's really a real shame. Whenever the NIV sees repeated words, it tries to find interesting alternatives just to keep it fresh. But the downside of that is that you miss repetitive themes. So in a more literal translation like the NASB or the ESV, you'll get those repetitive words, which you may or may not like in everyday use, but it's nice to see them. All the way through Ephesians, talks about, Paul talks about life as walking. You don't live your life by sitting there and letting it happen to you. You live your life by walking it out. So he says, because of all these wonderful things, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With humility, gentleness, patience. You wouldn't expect these words after such a glorious opening three chapters. Because all these things are amazing to you, show off. Because you've got so much to show off about. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, all these things are true. They're a grace gift from God, not because you've earned them, because God is good. Therefore, walk with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintaining something is an active word. As I found out, when my first car, a Toyota Corolla, started making strange noises, I took it to the garage, and the mechanic said to me, okay, well, when was the last time you had it serviced? Um, and oil change. Well, I, um, have you done any maintenance on this car? No, I haven't done any maintenance on this car. Well, he said to me, if this wasn't a Toyota Corolla, it would have collapsed already. You've, you've run out of basically all the fluids in this car. And so he took me to school, and he helped me to realize, as you will know, if you've got a car or a house or an instrument or anything mechanical or physical, that maintaining it takes work. Maintaining it isn't sit back and watch it rust. Maintaining it takes work. So we need to be eager to maintain 
the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I heard this. You know how you can read the Bible again and again and again and again and again, and then somehow God just draws something out to you that you've heard a million times and says it in a fresh way. In Proverbs, it says, it is a man's glory to overlook an offense. It is a man's glory to overlook an offense. Examples. Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Stephen being stoned. Father, do not hold this against them. We will upset each other, hurt each other. We will wrong each other. But love hopes all things, believes all things. Doesn't rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We need to work at maintenance. Work at maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you were to sum up Ephesians in one word, it'd be unity, or together, or one. Those big ideas about drawing things together. Here's an example. There is one body, one spirit, just as you're called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This passage is about unity and maturity because God gives us gifts. Gifts that we don't earn, but he gives us because of his grace. Gifts that are different from each other so that we can use those gifts and receive those gifts from one another to build up the body of Christ. Who is it that builds the church? Yes, God builds the church. I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said that. I will build my church. But Jesus also says through Paul in, say, Corinthians 14, when one prophesies, they build up the church. When you speak in tongues, you build yourself up. When you prophesy, you build up the church. Or here in Ephesians if we skip down to verse 16, it says, When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God builds the church and we build the church. We build the church by using the gifts that God has given to us. So just, just think it through on a faith level. I believe... God made the world. I believe God made me. I believe I'm sinful, but God saved me. I believe God wrote the word of the Lord for me to strengthen me. I believe God poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. I believe that God gave gifts to the church. So what do we do with those gifts? Do we ignore them? Do we hold them in contempt? Do we neglect them? Do we pretend that the church doesn't need them? The faith response to God, who we trust, surely is to say, if you think we need these gifts, then we believe you. I've told the story so many times, you must have heard it, of when I was 
on a hike in Africa, nine days out into the Otaniqua Trail in the, in the in Drakenberg's mountains. And uh, nine days we had to carry everything on our back. When, when, once we started, we left the car park. We didn't see anybody for seven days, okay? Wilderness. So seven days into this hike, we come across the first person we've seen. This is a big event. We all sit down, get the map out, have a little drink with him. He looks at our route and he says to us, if you're going to take that route that you're planning, you're going to need a gun. You're going to need a gun because of the baboons in that area, which are basically wolves with opposable thumbs, okay, incredibly vicious and dangerous. And we have a choice. We don't know this guy from Adam. Does he want to spoil our day because we don't have a gun, we'll have to turn back? Or does he want to save our lives? Is this good news he's got for us or bad news? How do we take this information he's given us? Another friend of mine went, wanted to go swimming in Australia in Botany Bay. He'd gone all the way to Australia. He was looking forward to this day out. They got to Botany Bay. Big day out. Massive 20-foot sign on the beach saying, no swimming. Sharks common. Does he think to himself, that sign just wants to spoil my day? Or does he think that sign wants to save my life? When we come to the word of God, do we think, I need to live like this and not like that? Does God just want to spoil my day? Or does God want to save my life? If God thinks we need gifts, we need gifts. That's my faith position. I've known God use pastors in my life. People who cared for me when I needed, being, I needed care. Leaders, people who, who led me when I needed to be led, prophets, people who pointed me to Jesus when I needed a breakthrough or confirmed something when I needed. Or evangelists, people came alongside me with answers to my theological questions just when I needed them. This is how I remind myself of the five gifts. The thumb is like the apostle who brings strength to every other gift who provides stability. The index finger is like the prophet who points the way forward. The longest finger is like the teacher who stands up amongst the congregation and teaches. The ring finger is like the pastor with the wedding ring who loves the church. The pinky is like the evangelist on the edge bringing people in. Obviously, this isn't a Bible analogy, it's just a aid memoir to help us realize that God gives different gifts. The thumb is not the pinky. I was preaching in St. Ives last week, and the guy that drove me there, I noticed he only had three fingers on both hands. So I asked him about that, and basically he was born with only three digits on each hand. And I believe they've restructured one of the fingers to work like a thumb, so it works like a thumb, but it looks like a finger. And just looking at his hand and talking about his hand and what challenges he'd had rem reminded me that, that our fingers are not the same. The pinky is not the index finger, is not the thumb. We have different gifts. The piano is not the guitar, is not the drums. When they come together, they get a beautiful, full sound. Imagine the difference between going to uh, 
Sydney Opera House and seeing a full orchestra of instruments versus going to Sydney Opera House and seeing a full orchestra where everybody was playing a ukulele. One is rich and has dynamic range, and the other one is a lot of ukuleles. God has given us different gifts, not because we're better or worse than each other, but because of his grace. And we need to say, we want those gifts. We're not going to go into the TDA and grow because of the TDA. We're going to grow because God is building his church, and he's building his church partly through us using our gifts and receiving one another's gifts. A gift is something that just can't be sort of rationalized. My friend Simeon is a great teacher, and so I prepare for hours and hours, and I run something by him, and he just says one thing, and I think, I understand it all. Nicky Gumbel could read an address off an envelope, and people would flock to Christ because he's an evangelist. I've got a friend who's so pastoral, any method under the sun that she uses, people feel loved. Because we have gifts. Let's use those gifts. Let me leave you with a challenge. Imagine in your inner man or inner woman is a little thermostat or a little volume control. If you're uh, very, very cool and your volume control goes past 10, and up to 11 is one louder. And I want us to think, I believe God's given me a gift. I believe other people in this room need that gift by faith. And I believe they've got a gift that I need. So let's turn up our engagement. Let's turn up our volume. Let's turn up our receptiveness to one another. If you like, think about it like this. However vocal and proactive you are in a small group, be that in a bigger group. Don't come into these big groups in passive mode and sit on the back row metaphorically and let others do it. Come into a group like this thinking, we are all a priesthood, holy people, we all have gifts. They need to be used. When we use our gifts properly, the body of Christ is built up. Let me pray. Father, thank you for unity and maturity. Thank you that those things go hand in hand in Ephesians 4. Thank you that they are aided by your gifts your gifts, which we should think of perhaps as tools, not gifts for us to have at home on our mantelpiece, but tools in our hand to be put to use for the building up of the body of Christ. I pray that there's a new season in the life of Life Church, not simply because of a new venue. Lord, we know that's good and we pray for breakthrough, but our eyes are fixed on you who build the church, and the gifts you've given us. Help us to grow in confidence in you as we use our gifts and receive other people's gifts. Amen.